Jan, we've got a full studio. We had to bring another chair. And do you realise we've got a white cockatoo in here as well? A white cockatoo? You might have to find that out in your interview, but uh, I can explain later. But uh, I think you better start with your guests. <laughs> You'll leave me in wonder, David. Leave me in wonder. Okay, and I will. A couple of weeks ago in The Age, you might have seen in the Two of Us segment... An incredible story about a mother and a daughter. Well, I've got them in here. And they're going to talk about their book, Not Just Black and White. This book, and well, welcome, Leslie. Welcome, Tammy Williams. Thank you very much. Thank you. This book, Not Just Black and White, starts and finishes with tourist buses coming through Cherbourg in Queensland. Sixty years ago, the tourists came to Gawk came to see. Now they come to listen and learn. Back in the 1950s, Leslie Williams was only 10 years old. Leslie, why did they come to look at you? I suppose they were probably wondering because these communities were cl very closed communities, Aboriginal communities. And I suppose they would have heard about, you know, we're allowed to visit if we got special permission to come and visit and see what's what's going on in these Aboriginal communities. And what was going on? Tell me about your family and your lovely granny. What was going on? Lots of things were going on. Um, we did like just um, everyday everyday things. Men, our, our men going to work. The women looking after the kids. Us kids going to school. And, uh, but it was all strictly controlled. And this is one of the things, the uh, minimising of contact be between black and white, wasn't it? Absolutely. Um, you had a happy life, a, a happy existence. We were as happy much as, as, child, as, as children, but every aspect of our lives yeah. was controlled. Yeah. From where you lived, what food you ate, what education you received, uh, what type of work you were allowed to do. Now... One word's control, the other word's protect. And through the book, I, I found out about the 1897 protect uh, the Aborigines from opium. And this is so they actually weren't paid in opium. And this is one of the reasons to separate. That That's correct, um, Jan. It was in the early days when, when a lot of the um, landowners, some of them did pay uh, the, the Aboriginal workers in opium. Yeah, phenomenal. And I the, didn't know about yes, that. Right, and the government thought, well, we need now not, uh, to protect this dying race of people. So they said, that's why they set up these reserves and then gave the white police powers to remove oh. Aboriginal people. I've learned a lot about that through this book, I can tell you. Well, so, Leslie Williams, how old were you when you um, were sent away to work? I was um, 17. And the then I, my first job was sent away to to work as a domestic out at Condamine, a sheep and wheat property southwest of uh, Dolby or west of Toowoomba. You carried some documents, like a passport. Why did you have to carry those? Well, all the the work work agreements and all the conditions were in this brown envelope, and in the brown uh, brown envelope uh, contained. A letter to to the employer who was going to be working for the agreement 
uh, work agreement that we all had to sign, and the agreement was between my white employer and the government. Not you. Not me. It was on behalf of me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, a pocket money book where my employer then gave gave you know gave me pocket money, which was then entered into this little pocket money book, and also a, a permit. The permit's allowing me to leave Sherberg because if, a lot of Aboriginal people were pulled over by the white police and we had to produce a, produce a permit to explain why we're leaving, why yeah. we were allowed to leave Sherbrooke. So it was like a passport, you know, that you could be deported back in... <laughs> exactly. ..or detained from. So, in the story, we read, read about the numbers of hours you worked uh, with no time off and the pittance of pocket money you were paid. And it was also the isolation. And then in your second job that you had... It was the lack of security, which was just frightening, so brilliantly written about in this book. Third job was in Brisbane, and things changed. Your employer, Andre, uh, Andrea, became your friend. Uh, she told you, really, of your legal entitlements. Exactly. See, part of these, the work conditions, were they, the employer then had to sign this agreement. But when I... Andre, after I arrived there at her house, which is in one of the upmarket suburbs uh, in Brisbane, Clayfield, she then had to go in, uh, into the head office, which was in the city, and signed this agreement. And it was all explained to her. I mean, I was at the city. I was sitting outside. So it was her that went in and spoke with the white official. And when she came out, she wasn't very happy. She, she, said, <laughs> she said, look. They want me to pay. Want me to put your money in your into the, your account held by the department. She said, "But it's your money you're working for. I insisted I'm going to give it to you." And of course, I got happy. I thought you can imagine the dollar signs came to my eyes and I thought, I'm going to get paid directly to my hand. Where the previous uh, two jobs at it, I did uh, for two years out west. I only received pocket money, yeah. and the bulk of it was sent back and kept in trust at the uh, at the superintendent's office in Sherbrooke. Look, we haven't got near enough time to go into the fascinating story. Uh, one part of it is like one of your favourite pieces of reading, a Mills and Boone romance about <laughs> how you met your husband, Willie. Yeah. Um, and it sort of just goes on, but it really highlights in... Who did you speak to in Geneva? Of all places, I spoke. Would you believe I went straight to the top? I spoke, I'm only yes, I spoke with the uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights. Absolutely phenomenal, and that's what set in train the apology that you finally got. And um, look, we are jumping years. We are jumping so much hard work on your behalf, but what you ended up getting done, apart from this apology, was phenomenal. Oh, thank you. It it was. I was insisting that. You know the government have a set up an inquiry, but they just kept uh, procrastinating. So in the end, I had a good bunch, good lot of um, lot of friends from the legal centre, Caxton Legal mm-hmm. Centre, and this very young and talented barrister who did the opinion. And in the end, I said, "Look, I'm getting tired of this. Our old people are dying, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them. What well, I'd like to have see. The, I like them to." have acknowledgement before they pass away. So in the end I said, stuff it. <laughs> Let's take legal action. So the, lo and behold, I walked down to the Supreme Court with my lawyer and issued a writ. 
Oh, look, as I say, this is the tip of the iceberg of this story. It is fascinating. But I'm now going to move to Leslie's daughter, Tammy, and an apology. Did you ever get an apology from that year 12 schoolmate of your mate, mm, school friend or school person of yours who wrote nigger across your year 12 photo? No, it, um, I've never got an apology or even an explanation. But, um, you know, with hindsight and maturity, um, you know, I accept that, um, I mean, there was a life-turning, life-changing life well, event for me. And and, but, and, I, and I'm hoping that it was a life-changing <laughs> event for her and that she, as, a, as an adult now, is able to look back and reflect on the mistake she made as a, as a young person. And I've been able to use that, being called a nigger, although it, um, it destroyed part of my soul at that stage. But with a mum like I'm, I've got, she wasn't going to let me well, I know uh, wallow you, in pity. And you showed with your cuffs and you went home and you knew, <laughs> you knew your mother was going to get... And what was your mother's advice? Well, I'd hit this girl, which, you know, I was so, um, which I'm shocked about and because I'm not a violent person and mum went home uh, and um, and so I went home to mum and I was terrified of telling mum and she said, look, uh, look, Tid Tid, because mm. that's our little nickname for each other, means sister. She said, there are two ways to fight racism. You can either keep fi- um, hitting people with your fists, but you're just... Um, you're just another stereotype. You're continuing the stereotype of blackfellas. And one day you could hit someone the wrong way and they could die or you could be charged with assault or something worse and end up in bloody jail. That was her words. <laughs> and she said, well, and I said, well, what's the other way of fighting racism? And she said, well, fight them back. And I said, huh? But she said, no, but not with your fists. You've got to fight them with your talents. And yeah. it's up to you in your life to work out what your gifts are. And so um, for me, it, it was writing at that stage. Oh, but what is it now? <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm a barrister now, but, uh, <laughs> yes. but still writing. Mum roped me in to, to help her write this memoir. <laughs> uh, when you were growing up, what black uh, role models did you have? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, um, I grew up in Gympie, not far from Sherberg, so a predominantly white town, a place where uh, Pauline Hanson had a One Nation gift shop in the oh, main street. Shit. Uh, but um, Begimpi was, um, although there weren't many Indigenous people, there were lots of um, white fellas who were willing to support us. But as a young Aboriginal person, although I was getting messages at home from my mum saying, you can be anything you want to be, it was hard to see someone in the community who I, could, who I wanted to be like. I couldn't see myself in the reflections of the, the bank teller or the or the doctor or the, um, the the town magistrate because they didn't look like me and on television at the time there were very few um, Aboriginal positive role models that were being shown not mm-hmm. just on TV but on radio and so I had to look uh, I, I um, latched on to Claire Claire Huxtable of the Cosby Show. <laughs> the Cosby Show. I yeah, and believe. so although she although she was an Aboriginal, but she was, she was a classy black woman. Absolutely. She was smart. She was articulate, and she was a lawyer. And I thought, huh, look, I wouldn't mind being like Claire Huxtable. Uh, and well, <laughs> look, we haven't even got any time to tell how Michael Jackson got into the story, <laughs> but it is phenomenal. And Neverland and, and Mum on Neverland. nor how um, uh, Tammy Williams followed up John Howard's speech. Oh, gee. This was, this, he gave a speech 30 years after the referendum you know, acknowledging uh, Aborigines and got booed. And um, Tammy 
Williams was the next speaker and did it just brilliantly. But this title is called Not Just Black and White and it's not just about the racism that that occurs and it's so evident through this book. It's also about just being black. Mm. And look, three paragraphs, I think that just sort of sums it up beautifully. Uh, Tammy Lewis, would you read from page 281, please? Sure. During the late 1990s, it was uncommon to be to be accused. So it was uncommon to be accused of trying to act white within the Aboriginal community. Although successes of Indigenous people on the football field or athletic track were lauded, such support wasn't always extended to those whose success was achieved inside boardrooms. Accomplished, educated and well-dressed Indigenous people working in the public service or the private sector were more likely to be labelled as a coconut, someone who had black skin but was white on side and therefore, and so-called, not one of us. This not only reinforced the stereotype that black people could be brilliant on the sporting field, but not in the classroom or office, it also sent a mixed message to our young people that sport was the arena to which to, to succeed and to not even try for intellectual roles. While there was a clear political push to move our people off welfare, to stay in school and get a job, those who did just that risked criticism and, and alienation from their own kind, it was as if Aboriginal identity somehow equated to struggle, poverty and hardship. Doing nothing different somehow made you less Aboriginal and no longer part of the mob. Little wonder then that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of my generation continue to question what their identity means. During this period, I copped it from both sides. I'd be criticised by my mob for being a so-called uptown black for wearing stylish dresses, suits and makeup in court. And then when I went into a department store to buy nice clothes, security guards would suspect I was going to shoplift them. I didn't fit neatly into either the black or white community stereotype and I wasn't the only one who felt in limbo between two worlds, in the grey area between black and white. Fantastic. Look, um, there was so many, so much in this book. As I said, Michael Jackson, <laughs> um, Leslie's story about just how she became a teacher. Fantastic personal stories that just blew me away about what Australia has done, the legal system. Oh, David. <laughs> okay. And, and the cockatoo. And the white cockatoo. Tammy, can you explain the white cockatoo we've got in our studio? Well, we're down from Queensland and uh, my two children have uh, accompanied me. And so we've got in the studio with me my eldest son, Guillaume, and uh, he's nine. And it means uh, that that's an Aboriginal word for white cockatoo. So they've come down with us because we're appearing at uh, readings tonight, re readings, Carlton, at... Um, 6.30. 6.30, and so we'd love to meet um, um, lots of people from Melbourne, so please come and join us. Excellent. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, basically, looking for a segue, history and identity are both come out in the book I'm doing today. Now, Australia and Turkey are linked by a common history. Jenny Ackland, in her novel The Secret Sun, expands in a most imaginative way on that connection. So, Jenny, welcome to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me on. Hello. What, hello. What can you tell us about this connection that you've got going in your book here? Well, what I can tell you is um, coming up with coming up with the idea. It has been described as a bit of an audacious uh, combination, shall we say, and risky to include not just one but two of maybe Australia's most. Uh, 
um, iconic, iconic and enduring fascination. So well, one risky, of them, risky. <laughs> am I allowed to tell? Yes, I, I think you are. Yes, one is Ned Kelly. Yes. What have you done with Ned? Our Ned. Okay, what have I done with Ned? Well, in it's not giving too much away to say that uh, one of the characters, the historical character in my novel, is possibly the secret son of Ned Kelly. Which then gives the, the name to the book. Um, and uh, any feedback yet on whether you've offended the, the purists or...? I did. I've sent a copy to... Uh, a person that runs a Ned Kelly website, yet to hear back, um, and with the uh, the emphasis that it is fiction. Mm. Um, so, yes, and it is a, a, a playful spin, I suppose, and a bit of a mash-up. Well, it's, it's a bit of a conceit in many ways, in mm. terms of a literary conceit, because then you've got that connection with Turkey, and you've sort of compared Ned Kelly with Ataturk. Uh, yes, cheeky, perhaps. Uh, one of the one of the narrative threads or the ideas in the novel is that, of course, Ataturk did establish the Republic of Turkey in 1923, once the Ottoman Empire had um, disintegrated. And there is documentation or there are suggestions in Australia that in the 12 months before Ned Kelly was uh, captured and and, uh, executed that he was also involved in trying to establish a Republic of uh, Northeastern Victoria. Was that in the Geraldry letter at all, any of that? I don't know that it's in the Geraldry letter, but there was a, a handbill that was cited in London at the Public Records Office by uh, a a radio announcer, a journalist, I think in the early 60s, Leonard Raddick, if you know that name. Oh, yes, yes, critic for the And uh, then... uh, in, I think, 1969, he must have told some people that he'd seen this old-style handbill, which was de- a declaration of this republic, and told some people. And so an historian called Ian Jones, who is a Ned Kelly expert, went to London with um, Barry Jones, the former uh, MP and lab- yep. Labor man, to view this handbill, and it wasn't there. And the Public Record Office uh denied knowledge of it. So the belief is that it might be in um, the hands of a private collector and that it may surface. At some stage. But just this notion then that, well, and it's a plausible notion that that Ned might have had a son and what would have happened to him and such um, is, is in the background of this book. But it's also then all of these historical links, both past and recent history find their way into the book. Mm. You've got the Coles Book Arcade. I do, I do. And I, I, I am going to say that I'm a little young to uh, have visited or even have had one of the funny picture books in my hands. My mother remembers them. Uh, and, of course, the beauty of the internet is the ability to research and look up. And uh, did he have a monkey? Did he had a little marmoset. Yep. Uh, so I do that, not know the name of the marmoset, so, but he did have a little marmoset. But yeah. we find that in the novel. Yes. But then at the other end, um, you've also used recent history. So there was an incident that occurred in Spencer Street. Mm. Um, and so one of the leading characters, and we'll get onto the characters in a minute, is actually involved in this incident. Yes. What are you trying to do with this, this playing with history? Um, other than be playful? Uh, I don't know. Margaret Atwood um, coined a term. It's plork or plurk, I suppose you'd pronounce it, but a mix of play and work. So I suppose I, in terms of the um, 
several historical elements. I wanted to be really accurate, so I did a lot of research to make sure that things were accurate. But when it came to characters and plot, I've been playful mm. and I've mashed things together and just uh, just gone a bit, you know, maybe a bit nuts. And while I was writing it, I was thinking, look, this is terribly cheeky and it may not work, but someone will tell me if it's not working eventually. Uh, but my literary agent loved it and then the publisher loved it and ultimately it's up to readers whether they whether they buy it or not. But you've also got then Turkish history, and if I may, mm. um, now then, Fahat, said, there is an order from our government that everybody needs to make themselves another name. It's called a surname, and we have to choose one by the end of the year. Mm. It sits behind your first name on official papers. Jim had such a name in his country. It's the usual convention in the West, he says, for hat fiddled with a doily. That actually happened? Yes, that's, that's accurate. So I did research a lot of... Uh Turkish history, particularly after the establishment of the Republic. And a whole raft of uh, legislation was passed and, and uh, the language was changed. Ataturk took an easel and a piece of chalk around to village, uh, different villages and rural areas to teach the new alphabet. Up to then they'd used a, an Arabic um, script. And, of course, the, the this idea of an, a surname, a second name. So up until then people will have had names like... Um, uh, I am tall, tall Orhan. Tall yeah. Orhan or some sort yeah. of mnemonic that described them physically or uh, was to connected to their, their uh, industry or whatever job they were doing. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, so they had to choose new surnames. So we've got all this history overlay, underlay in, in the book. Your story also transverses almost a century. Now, we've got the thread then between James uh, in 1914 and Jem in 2015. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and, and also then we've got um, an amateur historian, is he, Harry? Trying He's to... a retired, maybe a bit amateur in terms of his particular investigations, which are his storyline in the book, but he is a retired university historian. Now, what brings them all together? Because they're all connected. They are all connected. Uh, not quite sure what you want me to say well, it's, here. It's the storyline in many ways yes. because James is then, um, well, the son of, but he's been to Gallipoli and he's, yes. he then reaffirms that Turkish connection. Yes. Chem, and you can actually hear uh, the connection uh, phonologically, shall we say, yes. between James and Chem. Yes, yes. There, and Harry as well. So that... That sort of provides the crux of the storyline. It does. When I first started working on this novel, I wrote 60,000 words of Turkish people in a Turkish village. And I was living in Istanbul at the time, married to a Turkish man, um, and was fascinated and immersed in the culture and reading the literature over there as well. And then I thought, but which Australian reader is going to be interested in reading about Turkish village is in a Turkish village. I need uh, a bridge, like a, a connection of, of interest. So I came up with the two, one Australian character, um, which is the James character, and then a, a young bicultural man who is Jem, son of migrants living in Melbourne. Um, the connection, of course, so James goes to Gallipoli and uh, it's not spoiling it to say that he accidentally gets left behind and ends up in a Turkish village. And the connection, I suppose, between him and the contemporary character, Jem, is that there is a family link and that is 
what the story reveals as as we read it. And Harry, in many ways, is a coincidence because he's following he is. the history of he's Ned Kelly. He's trying to find, trying to establish whether there was a secret son of Ned Kelly who went to Gallipoli, got left behind, and settled. And it's it's plausible. It's uh, <laughs> but then. What are the challenges you've had in terms of transversing the uh, over a century, mm. plus also then the uh, cultural um, differences mm. over that time and between cultures? And if I, I can just then add another level of um, difficulty to <laughs> uh, to what we're we're doing. Um, and on page one two five, we have the character voice of Berna, who's one of the women. Yes. Um, my name is Berna, but it can also be the wind that wraps the mountain and the trees that surround it. I'm as old as our hills. See my hand with its wrinkled back and veins large and ropey. I like my skin, for it is my good and loyal friend. It keeps the insides of me from spilling out. My hands and faces are friends too. They keep me fine company during the long hours of silence. It has been a quietness so complete I've listened to my hair grow white. I'm an old woman now. So you've had different voices, different mm. cultures, different mm. periods of history. Mm. How did you cope? <laughs> oh, how did I cope? Well, with great, um, I suppose, commitment to the to the story. And over time, it's not something that is, has just been written in a couple of years. I've been working on it uh, for a long time at, it takes a long time to to write a book uh, and to make sure that all those elements match up and work. So lots and lots of editing. Um, and having the character of Berna, she came quite late in the piece because I had these two male characters. Uh, it was quite a masculine feel to the book. But then I brought in Berna and Berna sort of clicked into place quite late as, again, the sort of central... Um, the central spindle, so to speak, around which everything is spinning and connected. And she, to me, she's like the voice of the village and she's like the voice of women everywhere or the voice of humanity, if you want to say. She's so wise and wonderful. People are loving Berna. Well, this is this brings then another thread in the story because whereas we can sort of reveal the Ned Kelly element mm. and not give anything away mm. um there is the village history shall we put yes. it um which has expectations which explains the link in many ways to australia which informs chem's attitude coming back mm. we can't tell too much of that because chem's trying to work it out himself mm. um that sort of small village psychology, attitude, mm. behaviour with relationships that have taken place. How much can you reveal about all of that? Well, I can probably say one of the one of the themes and there are you know, a few themes for that I was thinking about when I was writing it and working on it. One of them is this idea of inherited responsibility or inherited guilt. So the question of uh, whether an individual through family, and we, we all know about family baggage and family sort of conflict and things like that. Um, whether whether an individual can, whether an individual can um, be held responsible for things that the forebears might have for events and sins of the father, so to speak, but then also how responsible are nations when it comes to uh, things 
dark dark things in history um, and things like so that. So that's really just for the reader to think about and maybe form form some more ideas along those lines. In many ways, that's brought us back to our guests all, already. Yes, all um, the different cultures. All the different cultures. But there's also another thread there um, with Harry. Have you ever believed something, believed it absolutely, known that for it to be untrue is simply impossible? I realise there's no logic to it. Harry's voice trailed away. Chem thought of Zainab. He thought of Jenna. Harry continued... You can think of a thing for so long that it becomes inconceivable to let mm. go. Yes. And so this is compelling and driving people. Yeah. Yes. So we're running out of time, yeah. actually, and there's so much in this book. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.